Hello. Welcome back to the Waffle Press movie Hangouts. We haven't used Google Hangouts in a while. We're going to see how this goes. We're using Google Hangouts because I, your host, Diego Crespo, brought on a guest. But first, I'm going to introduce my other co-host, Nick Valero. Hi, Nick. What up? Hey, how's it going? Hi. It's going good. Gene's not here. He's working because this doesn't pay us yet. But hopefully, with your help at Patreon.com, it could soon. Anyways... The real reason we're here is because that was my that was my attempt at like a cheap plug at the beginning. I'm so sorry, everyone. Uh, uh, the real reason we're here is because we're welcoming Andrew Salazar to the show. Hi, Andrew. Hello, friends. Hello, family. Hello. I'm here. Hello. It's so good to hear your voice because we've never met in person. Gene met you in person though, and we talked about bringing you on the show, and we we're like, that's a great idea. And then Gene got held up with work, and that's understandable. <laughs> so I'm not going to give him shit for it. Purest of ironies. <laughs> but we are we are here together. Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who who are you? What do you, what do you do? We met through the Twitter sphere. Yes. You, you like movies? Yes, very much so. Well, currently as of right now, I am a film student. I am very close to finally getting out of school and finally like contributing work in like the real world. But for the past few years, I've been a writer at multiple websites. I've like bounced from here and there, but my current home is Geeks of Color. And it is through there that I have published many reviews, think pieces, etc. And yeah, I just love like uh, like being on the internet, meeting people just like yourself. It's like one of the best ways to, I guess, get your name out there and network in the right way. Because like you, you can't, you never be surprised on who you meet and who you can actually be like really cool with. Unlike with such like random websites such as like Twitter and et cetera. And that's how I'm here. That's how I got here. Yeah, Twitter, Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and all those things, they, you know, they can be kind of draining and everyone says like social media is like bad. And in a way, it, it totally kind of is. Um, Twitter, get rid of the no, nonsense. Yeah. What the Absolutely. fuck? There's a lot of like really tight knit communities. And I'm not I'm not talking about film Twitter, quote unquote. But there are other like like sub communities and subsets of people who are legit really connected with each other and who actually make great like um, like like business efforts etc to get their like brand out there so it can be very useful and very also like beneficial in a personal way and beneficial in a professional way yeah exactly and uh to shift into a little heavier gear before we get into the show uh we should acknowledge that the, the day of this recording stanley passed away unfortunately and he was a big um he was a big figure in in our community you know film twitter film everything uh and comic books he uh he, he left like a big impression on everyone he 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 drove the industry in a big way uh from his marvel movie cameos to his admittedly complicated legacy um but without a doubt i think he was one of the more progressive icons in the comic industry and in promoting positivity uh community diversity there's a there's a clip I, I can't I'll try to find it and plug it in here I, I don't know where it is right now or what show it was on but he was talking to Kevin Smith about Spider-Man and it's very it's, it's very one of the very few comic book characters even back then that, that was covered from head to toe like if Captain America you still yeah. have this much of his face Spider-Man's completely enveloped in his costume oh you so know the good thing about that yes you could be any kid yeah you could be black, you could be Asian, you right. could be Indian, you right. could be anything, and imagine you were in that costume. Right. So I think that made it relevant mm. to 
everybody everywhere. Right. And that was accidental. I mean, I, right. I don't think we planned it that way, but right. it was very fortuitous. And uh, that's, that's very remarkable. And I think we should take that lesson above all uh, from his works and his life. So if, if you guys have anything you would like to say about Stan Lee. The, the other thing that's really interesting about Stan Lee is the fact that he, uh, he didn't... He didn't think that this is how his life was going to be. He originally thought he was going to be the next great, you know, American author. And that's why his name is Stan Lee, because he wanted to hide his name and everything like that. Because uh, his name is Stan, uh, which uh, is Stan Leibowitz. And he ended up cutting it down. So that way, when he, when he actually wrote his book, he would he could go under his own name instead of having to be Stan Lee. Uh, but also, I just think it's so iconic on how much he made comic books grow. You know, he he was able to surpass what was commonly uh, sold as comic books and how they were just, you know, made for kids and they were nonsense and everything like that and turn them into real journalism and turn them into real novels. And I think that's pretty impressive on the, the mark that he's laid on the comic book industry and even the movie industry today. Yeah, I really quick. Uh, I think that's interesting that he wanted to become the next great American author, because in his own way, I'd argue that he kind of did. Yeah, he absolutely his, his material. He absolutely did, and I, he, you know, uh, Stan Lee even said back in the day that he he used to be embarrassed of the fact that he was a comic book writer. You know, people used to not take him seriously or anything like that, and that's that's really amazing that in the year in the ninety four years that he had, you know, he he turned himself into not only one of the you know most iconic things, but he became a brand. He became you know something that like as soon as you see Stan Lee marked on something, you were immediately interested in, and you knew exactly what it was. You automatically knew it had to do something with comic book or geek culture yeah uh andrew thoughts yes um you guys have hit all like the good points so far uh it's currently the afternoon over here and there have been plenty of hours to digest his passing and i've noticed something very different about his passing in particular compared to like other big uh celebrities and icons it feels more it's not as sad as I thought it would be because you know we all knew he was like you know at a very old age and I'm not saying that oh we all saw it coming but this does feel more celebratory compared to other passings I feel because all day today people have been posting they've been sharing their their photos that they've taken with him all these they've been sharing their stories of times that they've met him the things he's done everything that he signed, everything that he's left his, like, thumbprints on. Mm. And it, it really does feel like, yeah, physically, he's not here anymore. But because this dude is literally, he's literally, like, one of the dads of, like, modern pop culture, like, in general. Not just, like, geek culture, but, like, pop culture in general. Because his characters, they're so ingrained, like, in film, television. They've gone beyond the pages that they were created on. So it kind of feels like, you know what, like, I'm, I'm sad that he's not, I'm not going to be able to see him, like, in person anymore, but he, I don't feel like he's gone, and I don't ever think it's going to feel like he's ever going to really be gone, because he's created such a monumental effect. So it's bittersweet, I feel, in a good way, because there's not a lot of other people on this planet who have had such a career that they're never going to be felt like they're not there. That makes any sense. Oh, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean. 
Yeah. And, um, he, he, he was too big of an icon to ever feel like he was just going to be gone from the world. His work will live on and his fans will live on. I think it's it's special for him because like for like who knows not just like the the MCU like who knows when that is going to end finally and how many years in the future but like every movie his name is still going to like be on it regardless if he had regardless if he's not even here his like for whatever reason you're still going to feel his presence whether it's television film the books that come out animation etc like you're still going to feel like he's there and I think that's really special yeah, it, it really is. So rest in peace, Stanley. Condolences to his loved ones and to the rest of uh, movie, film, comics, uh, every, every member of those communities as well, because I know we've all felt it today. Uh, but moving on to the rest of the show, we're here to talk about another the, another work of uh, pop culture that that's, has another grandstanding <laughs> legacy by... Another um, great writer who I think also will have a complicated <laughs> legacy. Maybe maybe a little more complicated. I don't want to want to poo poo her too much. J.K. Rowling is uh, uh, the figurehead of the Harry Potter world, novels, movies. Uh, I, I think there are video games, right? I'm not I'm not too they're, familiar. But yeah, they're, they're probably they're are. yes. Okay, yes, yes. Um, and just a heads up. We won't be reviewing the new Fantastic Beasts film. So we thought we would take a look back at the Harry Potter series of films, talk a little bit about our favorite moments. And I wanted to open it up with uh, where it all might have gone wrong, because I think it's safe to say Fantastic Beasts, the first film, didn't hit with everyone, maybe mm. the way we kind of hoped it would. it would. It didn't really bring back the magic. I will say, uh, just up top, I was very negative in anticipation for that movie and I found myself enjoying it but also feeling like the worst thing that's ever happened to me is watching Colin Farrell slowly morph into Johnny Depp. <laughs> so, um, Andrew, how big of a Harry Potter fan are you? Did you like Fantastic Beasts? Tell me your feelings and thoughts. I have, I have never read a book but I literally grew up with this franchise because I know a lot of people say that. I like I'm not special because I get to say that. I understand that. But when I was a kid, I didn't have like before like I had a Blu-ray player. Before I had like a DVD player in general. Uh, well, I had a DVD player. I had only like five to like ten DVDs that I would just watch on repeat, like constantly. And I this was before I used movies a lot because I was so young, and two of them were. The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and I want to say Jurassic Park and the second Jurassic Park. It's something about duos. So strange. And I remember that the other two was uh, the first two Harry Potter movies, and I would just watch them on repeat. And those movies are long, so there would go most of my day. I would just sit down, and I would just keep watching them. And the the first Harry Potter movie I saw in theaters was Prisoner of Azkaban. And nice. that is a memory that will never, like, forget because i was like holy crap i feel like i feel like this is not over like i feel like there's no like go like going back from here so ever since then of course i've seen all the movies i've seen it a bunch of times for a few years i would have like a holiday tradition where i would watch like all the star wars movies in a row i'd watch all the harry potter movies in a row at home i'd watch all the Anna jones movies in a row just like just screw it because it's a tradition 
Um, I did think Fantastic Beast was fine. When this was announced, I wasn't, like, really negative. Because I was like, alright, I mean, it was bound to happen anyway with, like, the current climate of Hollywood. Like, everything's getting, like, rebooted. There's prequels, sequels, etc. But, yeah, I did feel like that movie, <laughs> like, left me wanting a little bit more. Because it was, like, like, if Harry Potter, like, if the films are your favorite, like, pizza place. Like, if you love Domino's, etc. The Harry Potter movies are your Domino's, then I guess Fantastic Beasts is like Little Caesars. Where you're like, you know what? <laughs> it's, not, it's not bad. Uh, uh, fill me up for now, but yeah, I'd rather much have Domino's. Oh, wow. I love that. Uh, Nick, thoughts on the Harry Potter series and your thoughts on Fantastic Beasts? Well, I mean, I've, I mean, just like Andrew said, I mean, we we've all kind of grown up with the Harry Potter series. I mean, uh, from movies, I mean, from books all the way to movies and everything else. Uh, I mean, some some of the Harry Potter books are actually, you know, uh, required reading now inside of some elementary schools just because of, you know, how good they are for kids and everything like that and how interesting they are. But uh, for Fantastic Beasts, I mean, I love those movies. I, I remember watching Sorcerer's Stone in the movie theater. That was awesome. You know, also playing through the entire DVD where you had like secret entrances to get to the special features. You had to do a bunch of other different things. Oh, that was, deep that was, cut. Deep cut. Yeah, love it. you know, if you... <laughs> Yeah, if anybody who actually had the old DVD, you had to, you know, watch the movie. You had to see how it, the exact bricks that they pushed to get to Diagon Alley. And then in the special features, when you clicked it, you had to do the exact same thing in order to get to Diagon Alley and get to the special features on the DVD. So, I mean, that was like, that was really cool. And it really immersed you into the world. And you really also, as a young kid, you realized I got to keep watching this, this movies in order for me to figure out how to get to the special features. But um, the one thing that was really interesting about Fantastic Beast is that I get what they were trying to do. They're trying, they're putting you in decades before Harry Potter even takes place, you know, uh, taking you into a brand new world and you get to see how, you know, the advancements of magic kind of happened and everything like that. I just think that, you know, if you were going to do Fantastic Beasts and stuff like that, they should have gone completely wacky with it. You know, they should have just gone with, like, um, following him very much, maybe, like, kind of like Lord of the Rings-esque, where, like, he's traveling the world trying to find fantastic beasts, uh, which are, like, learning how to tame them, you know, make it, make like, actually get further in depth into, like, the magical realm of the world and everything else. I think that, you know, they kind of shortchanged themselves by going, oh, yeah, we're taking a bunch of these magical creatures and putting them in a city where now they have to deal with some form of, you know, dark, mm. you know, like a dark spirit type of magical creature that comes from, like, trying to subdue, like, uh, hold back your magical powers and everything else. It, 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 was, it was an interesting idea. I just feel like it was poorly executed. You know, the movie mm. at, a, at certain times just got kind of boring and it got kind of stale. Yeah, I think uh, the idea that you just brought up, it's, it's basically about, like, you know, repressing, um, like, individuality, yeah. you know? And uh, that, that really shocked me in that movie because I was like, hey, this is really interesting. It's a little dark. doesn't really mix with the magical Pokemon thing you got going on with Newt. But, like, yeah. how, they, how they ended up tying that around with, like, oh, because he had, he's able to have, like, such, like, empathy for these creatures. Of course he's going to be the one to have empathy for... Uh, Credence, who's like basically going through a mental breakdown right now. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. The problem is, I, I think anyways, that like 
you're you're seeing another rise of another dark wizard and it's becoming another it's becoming arguably the 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 least interesting part of the original Harry Potter films. Not in ideas, just in execution, I think. Um not that they're bad there either, just I, I think uh, J.K. Rowling might be a little too uh, self-congratulatory with her uh, oh. approach to like, like rise of fascism. But she doesn't also like if you Andrew and I follow her or have been aware of her on Twitter. So I think we kind of seen like her politics seeping through. And yeah. given how she treats <laughs> certain aspects in the real world, it doesn't shock She's me a anymore real horse. Yeah. that some uh, some of the, the the traits of her villainous characters. Uh, in Fantastic Beasts and Harry Potter, kind of, uh, maybe you don't don't hold up to much scrutiny, and it right. it, it it leaves a, a sour taste in my mouth. And because I I have become like really interested in the the Harry Potter world, the Wizarding world, you know, like I really love the idea of just a a softer franchise exploring the world with like creatures and and new environments like what did new york look like in the 1920s great i'm sold what did paris look like in the 1930s that's apparently that the sequel is about uh i I, i'm not sure but that's that's interesting to me but if we're we're tracing all this along for for the next rise of a dark wizard a story that we know is inconsequential um that's kind of the bane of existence for all prequel films you know just like that's, See, that's an uphill battle for any creator to come up with. You need something else to replace that struggle. Okay, the struggle's already uh, finished by the time we, we get to the original series of films. Then you got to have some really great characters, you know, or some really compelling ideas. And for Fantastic Beasts, I liked Newt Scamander, and I'm not really an Eddie Redmayne fan. Yeah. But that's not like a, that's not a character you hang a series of five films on, you know? So well, like, what's what's the draw here? That that that's the thing. That's the reason why I thought if they would have just made the movie much more of like you know you know, I think you you nailed it on the head where it's more Pokemon esque where Eddie Redmayne uh, or you know you have a more charismatic kind of uh, uh, actor and they're kind of traveling the world and he's capturing you know uh, fanta- he's capturing these beasts. Uh, because like people are scared of them, or because they're terrorizing cities and stuff like that, and he's trying to find them a better home. I think that would have been kind of a more interesting idea because I know that they're trying to get into like, oh yeah, there's another dark wizard and everything like that. But that's the problem, though. You know that everything that happens right now is okay because you know in the Harry Potter thing, Dumbledore's alive, Newt Scamander, he's alive. Uh, what was it? They, you know that they defeated Grindelwald. You know that they, you know that all this stuff turns out okay. So all the stakes that are kind of in the movie of like, oh, will they survive? Will you know Grindelwald be able to, you know, complete his dastardly deed? All kind of falls flat because you know, no, none of this, none of it really matters because they're gonna succeed. Yeah, and I try not to like pin that on movies too often because you know, like, like when someone says you watch, you enjoy Die Hard because you don't know if John McClane's gonna live or die. I've seen Die Hard like fifty times and I enjoy it just as much. I know he's not gonna die, but yeah. like for a story like this, you really have to have something truly special to explore and like i think honestly the uh, one of the other problems is that there's no like real difference between voldemort and um grindelwald you know i mean johnny depp's like an actual monster and ray fines is apparently a pretty good guy or at least interesting <laughs> so like th- there's no difference between their characters so and we've already seen the rise of like uh, um that wizard supremacy in this this series you know and it was done really well i'd argue so like what it just seems like redundant here and then of course the the elephant in the room 
Johnny Depp is, you know, a dick. So I don't, I don't want to see him in in one movie, let alone five. So I I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like a like a big missed opportunity to do something interesting. Uh, personally, I think the Hobbit films also kind of suffer by not being more kid friendly. You know, because the Hobbit book it it's for kids. It's got some serious messages, but it's a kids book. It's a great kids book, but. I think that's the thing these prequel movies all kind of end up shooting themselves in the foot with. And I think the Harry, the Star Wars prequels, excuse me, kind of, um, they can't decide whether they want to be hardcore political dramas or, you know, wacky Jar Jar Binks adventures. And I'm a Star Wars prequels fan now, but I I, I see some tonal inconsistency. I I think, I think, I think the other thing that's also kind of an issue is that, when you just kind of have the, these stories that are kind of you know talked about in the background or anything like that, it's it's a lot of um, leaving it up to the imagination because no matter what, whatever they come up with is never going to be as cool as what I come up with in my own head. So I think people just aren't in general going to like the the you know the story that they're going to tell because the the story that I've made up for myself is always going to be way cooler than the story that you're going to tell me. And that, that's, the, that's the shitty part about prequels. That always seems to happen. That happened inside of the Star Wars prequels. That happens inside of this prequel. This happens in most prequels where, you know, people have an idea of what the prequel should look like, and it just isn't that. Right. Um, I think J.K. Like, bouncing off of that note, J.K. Rowling really set herself up because people that know Potter lore, they, mm-hmm. knew, they know that um, Dumbledore and Grindelwald had one of like quote unquote like the most epic like duels of all like wizarding history etc and people talk about that like oh yeah that happened a long time ago it was so epic etc blah 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 if you're setting yourself up to like finally show that like oh my god i don't know man like there's only like people i think that's what's so cool about establishing that myth that readers and like consumers like ourselves would be like wow i wonder how that shit went down like oh my god but if you're just gonna show it it's probably not gonna be as cool as i thought it was gonna be because especially with this because you have hyped this like duel for like years already and it's probably gonna take you like how many movies to finally get to this duel so if i'm sitting through these fantastic beast movies i'm like all right i know they're gonna fight eventually and i know it's supposed to be epic but by the time you get there are people going to still be aboard with this franchise? And is it actually going to be cool? Or is it just going to be, like, people, like, flowing their hands around in, like, some kind of, like, boring setting, etc.? Well, yeah. she, she really kind of set herself up for... I don't know. I don't want to doubt No, her. no, no. You, you totally bring up a really uh, great point. Yeah. Because, like, uh, to take it back to Star Wars for a second, a lot of people were like, oh, Snoke is, is Darth Plagueis reborn. Yeah. And, uh, or people want to see that story where Darth Plagueis is killed by his apprentice. But I mean, like for all it, 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 its flaws, uh, Revenge of the Sith, I think, leaves a really interesting note in that in that that myth that that Palpatine tells Anakin. You get everything you need to know about that character because it's implied that he is the apprentice that killed Darth Plagueis, right? Yes. And you get everything you need to know from that. You don't need to actually see it. You get that this man is that much like he's he's embodied by that much evil, and he's willing to like to kill someone who was thought to be unkillable. Mm -hmm. That's all you need. You don't need to see that character again. That fits that character. It it fits that world that that film is um, showing us. It fits the character progression for Anakin. And that's it. 
sometimes that's all you need. You know what's really interesting? Coming up with completely new characters and settings. Well, and that's stuff that's, like that. that's the one reason why I really like uh, stories like uh, kind of what like the Star Wars universe is doing for like their TV shows where they're telling stories that have nothing to do with their main characters. You know, they have a main plot line, but you know, they're, they're now they're telling stories about the, either the rebellion or they're telling stories about like this, like small offshoot or people. I think it would have been really cool if instead of going, okay, we're going to go back 75, a hundred years into the past. If you're going to already go that far into the past, why not go even further? Why not go into the, before the ministry of magics were even like, uh, created, go back to where it was kind of like a lawless, you know, where you have like just people using magic and, you know, nobody was around to kind of like keep all this shit under due, under, uh, which are under wraps or anything like that. That's a really interesting movie to kind of see like, oh, okay, so this is how they, they created the mystery, Ministries of Magic. This is how they created different stuff like that. That's really interesting. It has nothing to do with you know, Dumbledore. It has nothing to do with Harry Potter. It has nothing to do with, you know, Grindelwald. It has nothing to do with these characters that you've already met. You get to know and understand brand new characters and their world. And it, while also going further in depth with what exactly is going on in the world. You know what? This reminds me a lot of, uh, what year did Prometheus come out? Was that 2011? 2012. 2012. No, that was 2012. Right, right, right. The years leading up to that movie, I remember people were like, Every like every other week on like the internet, they'd be like, "Is Prometheus an alien prequel?" Prometheus is not an alien prequel. There'd be all these like hot takes, and Ridley Scott would be like, "It's not a prequel. It's just a story that takes place before Alien in the same universe." Yeah. Obviously, that was correct up until like the very end. We're like, "Oh yeah, this kind of is an alien prequel." I remember the same thing. J.K. Rowling, she was doing the same thing. She was. Fantastic Beasts is a story in the Harry Potter universe that has nothing to do with Harry Potter. I was like, all right, cool, I'm down. And then when you watch that movie, up until the very end, you're like, you know what, this is probably going to tie back with Harry somehow because you're teasing Dumbledore, you're teasing all of this. And I wouldn't be surprised if, like, I don't know what the, the timeline we're living is pretty wild. So who knows if we do actually reach it to five Fantastic Beasts movies. But let's say we do. Because that's the current plan, right? There's like yeah, there's yeah, there's plan, uh, right? there's plans for right. three more after this, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all if at the end of the very one, we're like, we see like baby Harry or some stupid something like we tie it all the way back and tie it in a nice neat bow, but the bow's ugly because you bought it at like a discount store and it's not what you wanted, but you know what? You're gonna take it anyway. You know why? Because you're a fan. And you love Harry Potter, and everything has a tie back with Harry Potter, and this is what you came for. So eat it, consumers. You may take take care, Rowling Rich. But also, but the the one problem that you have when you're telling the story like this is that you you start finding that you're writing yourself into a corner. You know, oh, yeah, I, absolutely, I, absolutely. I, I can't do I can't do anything I can't do anything with said character because in the Harry Potter because in Harry Potter they're like this or this person's alive or this person's here. Or like uh, even inside this new movie, uh, which I'll, oh yeah, Nagini is you know uh, what was it? She was originally uh, a person who turned into oh, an animagus. That's, that's I'm so sorry. That's the worst. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, let me just say when I found that out, I wasn't. I I do think that it's problematic. There are very there are very legitimate reasons why people of a certain descent 
should be very concerned about this representation, quote unquote. But that's a whole other conversation. But the first thing that came to my head was, why can't Nagini just be a snake? Why can't it just be a snake? And that's the first thing. And don't get me wrong. I, I go back to uh, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. I do think they, those are better movies. I do like those movies a lot more. But I still have this, Good man. I still have this question. Why couldn't the xenomorphs just be a an xenomorph? alien? Yeah, yeah, why can't it just be like some kind of space animal? Well, it is. They're just an, it's no like why can't Nagini? It's just a snake. Like why can't it? Just be, like why? Like <laughs> why? Can't, it's just a snake. Like there's no explanation. There it is. It's a snake. There, there's it's your, just there's an your, evil your, snake, right? Yeah, that's it. Like, like why do you we, have we've to already explain? seen Voldemort use one in uh in um. Chamber of Secrets too, the giant right. evil snake. This you is already had it. That. You yeah, already had basilisk. it explained. Basilisk. Yeah, the basilisk. It's just a snake. Like Why no, can't uh, it just be a snake? I'm so confused. Like no, it's no, just no. A but snake. To, to the credit, <laughs> to the credit of, because uh, as much as I love the Alien prequels, I think they're easily just as flawed as the Star Wars prequels. But to George Lucas and Ridley Scott's credit, all the decisions in those movies to tie everything back to the original narrative are all thematically tied. They're all meant for bigger ideas. Whether or not they're functional ideas or not is completely up to the viewer. But they're trying something. I don't think J.K. Rowling has really... Uh, I don't think she's stuck to that. You know, Not everything needs to be like some great grand idea. But I think she's under, undercutting her own work and narrative with, with the decisions that she's made. Because it just becomes more complicated. More complicated doesn't mean a better story, you know? To, to and, be totally, and that's that's a real bummer. To be totally honest, I, if you were really gonna make a you know a story kind of like this or anything like that, then why why not just have it where Newt Scamander is going to Hogwarts? If you were really gonna try and like make something interesting, why not just go back to Hogwarts and kind of like you know show what's going on there? You know, during this time of you know uncertainty or anything like that. I mean, the well, really, really, it should have taken place at another school across the the planet. You know? No, yeah, honestly, it should, like, it should, it should have <laughs> been something totally different. It, it should have been something totally different. I, yeah. me, me, I, I, I really like the idea of you know him just being a Pokemon master and going around the world <laughs> and trying to like capture fucking mystic. Uh, wait, 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 Nick, Nick, and shit. Huh? Wait, Nick, you're you're telling me that you actually like the idea of a movie titled Fantastic Beasts to actually be about Fantastic Beasts? Yes, yes, I. I Is that I, what you're saying? I, I would have really appreciated. Wait, are, it if you, it was, are you? Are <laughs> you? Are you uh, on are you, drugs? Yeah. Are you mad? <laughs> to be, this to, has to tie back to Harry. <laughs> well, no, because I honestly I think it, you know they, they could have done things like uh, where all the wild things are, or like they could have like done you know they could have just done a lot of really cool, interesting shit with like fan with like the magical creatures. The, all the magical creatures are really interesting and stuff Yo, like that. How wild they, would it be? Yeah. No, no. Finish your thought. Uh, I just want to say something. Go ahead. No, yeah, I, I, think that all the magical creatures are interesting, and they can, you know, you, they, they, they can funnel an entire movie, and you can, eat, if you really want to, like, squeeze Grindelwald in there, and you really want to do that or anything like that, you can even have it that you know, fantastic, like uh, these animals are normally righteous. I mean, are normally good, and there's some form of dark magic that's corrupting them, and stuff like that, and that's why they're attacking people, or that's why they're attacking cities. 
and stuff like that. And then it, and it's this giant thing of like, well, who's doing this? And it's a giant conspiracy. And you can still have your Fantastic Beasts. You can still do your, uh, which are your Grindelwald, and you can still tie it in correctly without having to do this entire thing of like, oh, well, you know, we're taking place in a city, and we have to be hiding everything. And it's it's kind of it's just a waste of fucking time. Yeah, I, I, I got to move uh, move the conversation on really quick. Wait, hold on. Let, me, let me just say something. How what? mad would it be oh, yeah, yeah, if, if we actually had a movie, a Fantastic Beasts movie about a Fantastic Beasts that A, didn't all take place in the suitcase because the, the first movie I actually think has pretty good production design and like costume design. It's like pretty cool. Like when you go in the suitcase, everything looks cool. But how about we actually go to those places... And all the creature designs were very good, in my opinion. Like, Niffler is really cute. The big rhino thing is cool. I, I would agree. But entirely, what if you yeah. just, like, like focused more on, like, practical effects, like the new Star Wars movies? And, like, you actually put people in costumes and you have animatronics. You have less, like, CGI. Like, there's you have, like, five guys in a giant rhino thing moving it around. Well, and that's you have, about... Like that what, would be like to me amazing, but I don't. That's like in a different world. Well, it's not like they can't afford it. <laughs> well, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing. The 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 price triples. First off, <laughs> like like them doing CGI and them actually having like animatronic CGI is way cheaper than actually like having an animatronic right, like, right. person there and ha- or having like a puppeteer or something like that. I mean, that's that's the whole reason why like the the Star Wars budgets are so expensive. Like there's there there's so much nowadays. But the bigger thing is, is that you know the, I I feel like even then like there was nothing wrong with that. I feel like they should have made it that each fa- each beast had its own character. They should have been characters on their own. And stuff like that, and that way you could've actually, been iconic. Made, yeah, yeah, and th- and that way you know you could have yeah. you know made a connection to these actual beasts, and you know like if they would have had like their own like trials and tribulations, you know they had their own like problems that you know Newt had to help solve, you know that way by the end of it you gave a shit about these beasts, not just oh they're kind of cute, and that's it, you know, but yep, could have been next Pokemon, dude, money, yeah, yeah. money yeah. wasted, it, it is, that's it is wasted what it is. money. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, um, yeah. That's we, it. We've been we've been kind of ragging on it right now, but we, we did mention that we're <laughs> huge fans of the Harry Potter. So why don't we take the time to talk about some of our favorite memories right now? Uh, I'm gonna pull up some Twitter ones. While uh, Nick, you could you could go ahead right now. What do you think is the right. best film in the series, the entire eight chapter series? Best film, I would probably think is Prisoner of Azkaban. My I, man. I, I really love Prisoner of Azkaban. I, I love I love the the juxtaposition of just like oh yeah the last past couple of movies have been like really cheery and really happy and then all of a sudden this movie is just dark. It is just like oh yeah they were like they were children. That's why those movies are so happy. They're becoming adults now, and now they're dealing with the real world. Like they're actually dealing with like outer forces and like how exactly the wizarding world reacts to like dark wizards and everything else and, and and i really enjoyed that and it's also um it's a great moment where you kind of see harry hermione and ron all kind of coming into their own where it's like oh yeah we you know these are the type of people that we're going to grow into you know these are the values that we are going to have and stuff like that um and yeah i i really think that's really cool uh to be totally honest uh do you want me just to run through it like film moment and character uh, we'll, we'll we'll go around the panel. Uh, Andrew, what do you think is the best okay. film in the series? Uh, I will also have to agree with um, Prisoner of Azkaban. 
Okay, so, this, so we all we all this agree. might turn into yeah, this might turn into Prisoner of Azkaban chill hour, but you know, screw it. it. I fucking love that movie. Yeah. Fun. People will be like, "Oh, that's the first movie you saw in the theater." That's why you, that guess that has a lot to do with it, obviously. But bouncing off of what Nick said, that movie does feel like it's gonna set you up for what the rest of the series is gonna be like. Also, at the same time, having its own unique aesthetics, tones. It's very much different than the other ones, even though it does set you up. Like, yeah, they're gonna be kid. They're gonna they're gonna be young adults from now on. They're they're growing up. Mm-hmm. There's still not a movie that's like it. There's very, in all, as a combination of cinematography, lighting, costumes, the score, it all meshes so perfectly together, and it's the most gothic out of the Harry Potter movies. I want to say, yeah, which is you wouldn't think it would be that book. Probably you probably think it'd be like the. Other more mature ones, quote unquote, but I think that's why it resonated with me for so long. Because as a kid, and even like that movie did actually like creep me out and scare the crap out of me <laughs> at certain points, and I think that's very impressive. Again, it also it does that while also still being a kids' movie, like what you said about the Hobbit, the Hobbit mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. It's uh, there's adult themes, but it's still at its core a children's story. I think this movie does the balance very well. I think it's really funny because, I mean, Prisoner of Azkaban is actually the first movie where they change the director for the first time. And yep. they, they, yeah. give it to a new, they give it to a new director. But uh, even the new director, uh, he, had, he actually gave them an assignment where he basically, he went to each actor and he was like, I want you to write uh, an essay about where you think your character is at this point and like how exactly they would react to the specific things that's going on. And apparently uh, Rupert Grit, the guy who plays Ron, uh, he never turned in the essay. Uh, Emma Watts, uh, Emma Watson turned in like a ten-page essay about like what exactly like she thought her parent, her like her character would be going through, and then ran. Uh, which uh, Daniel Radcliffe, he like turned in like a three-page essay that, w- that looks like it was due, like it was written like like probably like an hour before he was supposed to turn it in. And stuff <laughs> like that. Really and, perfect for those characters. Yeah, and like he thought it was like really right. funny because he was like that, that. He goes that alone immediately told me who the who they think these characters are. That Ron would never turn in the essay. He would just go like, "Yeah, fuck the essay." <laughs> uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter. He, you know, he's he's busier. He's busy with other shit, and that's why he can't finish his homework. And then Hermione Granger is much more of like, "I'm gonna finish this the best I possibly can." And I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I think that's the main reason why the movie looks so different is because the first off the director, and also because I mean these guys are just getting older. You know, they're they're at this point they're in their teens. You know, they're going through different stuff. They have different life experiences. So it was really yeah, cool. Yeah, it's the first one where you're like, oh, these kids are shooting up. Like even like when I was younger, I was like, hey, they're they're bigger in this one. You know, like it's it's a noticeable difference. And yeah, the director uh, Alfonso Cuarón. Uh, director of, you know, little movies like Gravity, Children of Men, nothing big, yeah. uh, upcoming Roma. He's only one of the greatest living filmmakers of all time. Uh, he really brings <laughs> a, a totally different sensibility to the movies. Uh, I, I, I think Chris Columbus, I have mixed feelings in him as a director. I think his Harry Potter work is outstanding. It's the best he's ever done. Um, but Cuaron's in a different ballpark, man. He's playing a different sport compared to that guy. Like, the quality increases is kind of unfair. The, the lingering moments between the characters when they're sad or happy. Uh, I, I, I will lead us into best moments in a second, but my, my favorite moment in the entire series is just when, um, when Hagrid encourages Harry to go ride Buckbeak. You know, I was like, oh, it's no biggie. And, you know, Harry's, his, the world's 
of the weight of the world's on his shoulders for his entire life up to this point and after, arguably. Yeah. And he just he has no moment to himself, no moment of reprieve. But when he takes off on Buckbeak, he just has like a minute to himself, just soaring over the grounds of Hogwarts as John Williams themes cue up in the background and Blair. And yeah. he just he has this moment to just smile. And it is it's beautiful. It brings a tear to my eye just talking about it. Uh, what what are some favorite moments in the well, film series for you guys? Well, well, I think also what changed Prisoner of Azkaban and why it was also really so good is because um, there was a change in Dumbledore as well. I mean, uh, Michael Gambon. Well, <laughs> it's a little different. I think. <laughs> well, yeah. no, but, but I mean, uh, un- unfor- un- un- unfortunately, Dumbledore, which the actor who played Dumbledore, he did pass away during the uh, which during the break. And everything like that and you know that was unforeseeable but michael gambin coming in he gave like a different persona to what dumbledore was and who he was because uh what was it the dumbledore beforehand he was much more of um a playful dumbledore he was a lot more mysterious and like playful and everything like that whereas michael gambin was much more of like the he was much more of the professor it feels like he he like he kind of feels like he's t- trying to teach them a lesson throughout the entire movie. Like he's continuously trying to like uh, get a message across them, and I think that's kind of interesting as well. He gives it a little bit more of a darker tone. I, I'd argue he he also makes him feel a little more human. Not to not to diss the previous Dumbledore, rest in peace, who, who was very mm-hmm. great. But this is a guy I could imagine having a conversation with Michael Gambon. The previous one, that's like Gandalf, man. I'm never. I'm never going to meet that. I could Richard, imagine like bumping into this dude like in downtown London. His name is uh, Richard Harris. <laughs> yes. Richard Harris. He passed away during the time. During it. Uh, but And everything like that. And I think uh, he really does a really good job of like levitating everything and kind of making it a little more adult. And uh, yeah, he does a really mm-hmm. great job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You guys got a uh, favorite moments? I'm going to start reading off some from Twitter in a second. Uh, yeah, I mean, for for me, my favorite character is always going to be Alan Rickman's Snape. Uh, moments, but go off. Oh, but well, that's <laughs> that, well, no, no, no. But I that was leading into my favorite moment. Okay, okay. Like that was that. Uh, which uh, the reason being is because I I think that the idea of, um, especially when you get to uh, the Deathly Hallows Part Two, when you actually see Snape's intention for the entire series where you find out that he hasn't been the big bad. He hasn't been this like minor villain that Harry Potter has been, you know, trying to thwart. that's been trying to thwart Harry Potter for all these years and everything like that, his entire, you know, academic life. Whereas he's been kind of like his guardian. He's been kind of his protector for all these years. And, you know, it's all because he like truly loved his mom and, you know, he would, he would do anything to protect Harry Potter. And it's, it's a huge, like, what, like, everything you knew about that character just immediately changed. And uh, especially knowing that uh, J.K. Rowling told uh, Alan Rickman that their first day on set. Like, he, she actually went to Alan Rickman and told him, this is, this is what's going to happen at the very end of this series. This is what your character is doing. And Alan Rickman was playing that the entire time he was being Snape. And I think that's amazing. Like he was keeping that secret for so long and he just couldn't wait to, for everybody to know it. It was great. I'm a, I'm a stick with prisoner Azkaban. Uh, the werewolf in the third act, the transformation that, like I said, that scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. And looking back on it now, it's like, man, this scene is so dope. The way it's shot. I think, Specifically, what sticks with me the most is the design of the werewolf, because up until that point, I personally had never seen, because the werewolf is such an iconic like movie monster. It's mm-hmm. been done so many times, it has 
it's instantly recognizable, but I have never seen a werewolf like that. And Harry Potter is such a special universe where throughout the movie going up leading up to that point where I was like, I wonder what a werewolf looks like. Is it big? It's probably gonna look more like traditional. But I was actually I do stand the skinny the skinny, lanky, uh, diseased uh, werewolf design. I think it's great. It's a memory that like is still imprinted in my head, and like I was legit scared like when they, like they run away from it up to the point where Bugby comes and saves them. I think that has to be my favorite moment specifically because of how it I was very uh, how I was so engaged with it in, when I first saw it. That well, that brings up an interesting point on that uh, like the the werewolf isn't romantic in this like. Uh, we see a lot of fantasy horror stuff kind of romanticize the the movie monsters. And I'm having a problem with that. You know, the quality is up and down, fluctuates in every genre. But yeah. for this one, the werewolf is clearly like it's it's a it's a tragic uh, circumstance, and it it looks unhealthy. You know, and it it looks like sickly and like gangly and stuff. And like that's that's yeah that 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 design really uh, drives home the tragedy of uh, Professor Lupin in a big way. Again, that that movie's so good. We could talk about like every scene for like an hour, but uh, yeah. I'm gonna bring up some other ones right now. Uh, Kevin Lee at Clee underscore Film Review on Twitter said uh, the very opening of Half Blood Prince, the photography is bleached, over contrasted, mm. and they sound like explosions to Harry. He's still grieving over Sirius as Dumbledore puts his hand on Harry's shoulder, signifying their relationship in this installment. And then that choir music. Uh, Half Blood Prince is a crazy underrated movie, I think. It has really the action of the series, but I think uh, David Yates is a director I'm kind of mixed on, but I think that's his best work as a, as a film director for, no, for yeah. a big way. Um, I uh, think Half-Blood Prince is the movie that really puts Professor Snape in, like, the forefront of, like, oh, yeah, like, this is, this is going to be, like, a, this is, like, going to be your main, like, person that you're going to have to deal with. And I, yeah, I really yeah that, that really solidifies him as, like, oh, yeah, he's going to be in the end game. Like, he's a big, yeah. he has a big part to play. Like, he, like he's, 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 Without him, you don't get to the end game, and you're gonna need yeah. him and everything like that. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, uh, Andrew Boyd Allen at a underscore b underscore Allen on Twitter. The scene in Half Blood Prince, another one, where the students surround Dumbledore's body in the courtyard is beautiful. Also, the scene in Deathly Hallows where Harry and Hermione dance together in the tent is a really great nuanced character moment. Oh yeah, uh, totally agree with Half Blood Prince. Deathly Hallows Part One, I think, is incredibly underappreciated for its use of character it oh, is, yeah. it's people say like their movies are like oh that's a character driven story half-blood or uh definitely Hallows part one really is one of the the pinnacles of that for like blockbuster filmmaking i think well in I that, mean, everything is driven by character in that oh yeah there's 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 not that much uh action going on and there's not a whole lot and there's not a whole lot like um them like world traveling or doing anything like that but there is a lot of like growth there's a lot of uh which like ron and hermione coming to terms with the fact that they you know they love each other uh ron trying to figure out that he does have some you know some animosity towards harry and, you know it's 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 just it's just a really good movie yeah um another one then i'll, I'll move over to, to favorite characters for for me and andrew uh at Good Hunter Abbey at Twitter, every second David Dolis is on screen in Azkaban. And yes, yeah. I I saw a tweet going around comparing David Dolis' uh, performance to Alec Guinness in the original Star Wars, like to what Alec Guinness was for Ben Kenobi. Oh. That he was to 
Professor Lupin. And I, that never really like even crossed my mind that sort of comparison. But in hindsight, I, I'd go to bat for that. I would defend that. Oh that, yeah. That absolutely. take entirely. He's, he's outstanding in that. Yeah, he does. He, I can, I can totally, I, I very, as soon as you said like Alec, uh, which, uh, Ben Kenobi, I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's, he is the teacher. He's the one that's trying to pass on this knowledge while also kind of giving him information about his parents, something that he doesn't really know, uh, which I, like, this is the person that's the, this is the closest connection he's ever had to his parents through another human being that's actually being nice to him. And that's, yeah. that's really cool. Andrew, uh, favorite character in the in the series? That is a very hard question. Do you want me to go first? Uh, no, 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 no. I can okay, go. Okay. I can go. Uh, okay, so thinking about this, I kind of want to lean towards because I'm trying to. You know, let's try to straight. Prisoner Azkaban is the goat. We all admit that. <laughs> no contest. Let me try to bounce around somewhere, another movie. And I think, because again, probably because I watched those movies on repeat, but uh, Gildroy Lockhart is the boy. Is <laughs> <laughs> that performance, again, never going to forget. Hilarious. I think it's it's also, it's so fun to see, uh, why am I like blanking out? Kenneth uh, Branagh? Yeah, yeah, Kenneth Branagh. In such a role because he's well known for being like a thespian like he's a lot of like he's like dipped his toes into shakespeare like countless times before and i think that role suited him like very very well it's like perfect casting and i think it makes like chamber of secrets is a long i think it's the longest movie out of all of them somehow yes <laughs> somehow it's the longest movie but popping that dvd in, i was like you know what gilter lockhart's in this i'm gonna get through this you know why because he's the boy <laughs> oh that that's a great character and performance uh the director of such classics as hamlet thor the cinderella remake uh his murder on the orient express remake is also uh kind of great and i wish more people would check it out i actually really like that murder I, I i really like that movie Johnny Depp. oh yeah me too i love it <laughs> oh yeah but uh i mean for everyone who yeah spoiler the twist to murder on the Orient yes. Express. I didn't going into it, so I had a good time. Uh, oh yeah, I didn't. I he didn't is know murdered it. by everyone. So if you if you want if you hate Johnny Depp, <laughs> watch Murder on the Orient Express. That was from um, uh, Bruno's gift to cinema. Oh yeah, <laughs> that that makes it like objectively his best movie. <laughs> um, just uh, everybody more... just massacred fucking. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 cinema right there, man. Uh, some more favorite moments on Twitter at Steel One Three One. Harry finding out Snape loved his mother. Heartbreaking. Uh, at Flop Paired Wuss, the flight scene with Buckbeak. Hell yeah. Uh, at Play Underscore Champion Harrison Brockwell. Harry and Hermione's dance is the epitome of the series. It drives home how much has been taken from these children and what's on the line if they fail. It's also a heartbreaking acknowledgement of what can never be between those two. Deathly Hallows Part One is my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> That's a hell of an ending right there. I was like, oh man, this is going to... Oh, there it is. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I Favorite moment I already gave. Um, best character. I, Yeah, I, I, Lupin's probably my favorite, but I'm going to move away from Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, Luna Lovegood. I, I really love that character. Oh. She's, um, she's, she's an outcast and, and a perfect fit for Harry and his friends. 
and as, as much as I, I, I appreciate the actors' uh, relationships and the chemistry, I will never understand on the page how Hermione ended up with Ron and how Harry ended up with Ginny. I'm sorry. I love these mm. movies and people from the bottom of my heart. In the movies, Harry should have ended up with Luna. That's just, that is, that oh. is bananas to me that that did not play out that way. Um, but no, I, I, on her own, I, I, she's, she's a fantastic character. She, she really drives, I think, a lot of um, the eccentricity that is kind of brought to the later films, which might kind of be uh, a burden on people. But I think she, she's one of the reasons and people that inspires uh, Harry and his friends to always be true to themselves and the fights that they, they have to struggle through in those last four films in a big way. I, I really like that character and performance and I would watch a spin-off movie about Luna. There you go. That's how much I like the character. Uh, mm -hmm. Another favorite moment uh, at Mark Price 21, wizard chess, the sorting hat and Harry, Ollivanders, and just the little things that color the world nicely. I would agree. The, um, the other character, which I would really go for is probably Gary Oldman as uh, Sirius Black. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Like Gary Gary Oldman is just a great actor in general. He's a, he's fucking amazing. Like anything Gary Oldman's in, I'll I'll fucking watch it. Uh, and long long time friend and and fan of the show, uh, at Ethan Williams, the entire Felix Felix's sequence in the Half Blood Prince is hysterical, and yeah, I I completely agree. That's that's laugh out a lot of funny. Uh, last one before we move on to the last section of this, uh, other fellow co-host Matt Garingo at Emperor OTN. I don't know if I'd call it a favorite moment. But the crowd slowly realizing Cedric is dead is one of the best executed moments of the whole series. A peak before a massive decline. Uh, I'm going to disagree with the last sentence, as we've discussed many times before, Matt. But uh, that moment, yeah. I remember watching that in the theater and feeling the rest of the audience kind of get hit with the same realization. And for me, that was the first moment in, in a public theater where I was like affected by something that tragic in a movie. Like it, it, I felt like I was in the, in the stands at Hogwarts watching it too. Like it, it just tore me apart, man. Hearing that dad cry out for his son that oh yeah, he's not gonna be able to respond. That that is just brutal. Just uh, listening to Mister Diggory, just uh, what was it? Just like utterly shriek, and just like screaming out and wailing for his son, and everything else. That's oh my god, it's fucking, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's so heartbreaking. yeah. And if if anyone you know is uh, experienced loss like that or it's not comparable but you know if, for anyone who's experienced loss and and pain that just drives through you know you can't do anything your body just shuts down and watching that in that movie i i, I love that movie it's a little uneven but it, it sticks to the landing so hard you know like yeah. that that really makes it one of my favorite uh of the potter series can i add oh, one more we're moving on from harry potter correct yeah we're going to talk about best uh, prequel movies and other film series and then we're going to wrap up but go ahead uh, I wasn't sure when, when to say this, but I this has crossed my mind plenty of times, and it's about it's gonna tie back to Fantastic Beasts, but it's also mm -hmm. something that I feel like people don't appreciate about the Harry Potter series in general, and we've kind of like hinted at it so far, but people don't realize how unique the change of directors made the first five movies from Christopher Columbus to. Alfonso Cuaron, to Mike Newell, who hasn't really done anything, like, else. Like, he did, like, the Prince of Persia movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, and uh, to David Yates. I think 
that transition from those directors is you can compare it to how it made the Mission Impossible franchise thrive with the transitions from different people to each one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really underappreciated because like every single movie since that since uh Order of the Phoenix and until like the end of time it seems is gonna be directed by David Yates. And I feel like it's also I also have similar feelings like with Mission Impossible. Like I want I love what Christopher McQuarrie has been in the series, but I want someone new to come in. I feel like we don't realize that if we want like franchises like this to survive, like you should like not have the same dude make like all the movies in a row, especially when they're all kind of sorry. You know, you're you're starting to get like too, too used to it. Yeah, them. there there's an aesthetic similarity that's like it it really does make them feel the same. You hear the complaints about Marvel movies all feeling the same too. You know. And that, that's kind of down to the editing, like the assembly line editing yeah. thing. But for like for the Harry Potter franchise, there's no excuse. So Yeah, because you really do feel like you're traveling and you're you're and it makes things more interesting when you go from Chamber of Secrets to Prisoner of Azkaban to Goblet of Fire to Order of the Phoenix. You really do feel like wow, like I I don't think the franchise has ever felt so more alive with, with those transitions. And I feel like people sleep on it because now, like, David Yates, I don't know, like, I have nothing against the guy. I mean, like... No, no, I, I'm, I'm I right there movies, with you, 100%. But I don't want the same dude making the same movies that look the same shade of gray. Like, it's always kind of foggy outside, you know? <laughs> like uh, Yeah, yeah. The, like, for, for one movie, like, again, I think it worked wonderfully for uh, uh, Half-Blood Prince and the Deathly Hallows films, but those were the mood for those tones. I don't want the wondrous adventure of Fantastic Beasts to look the same as it did back then, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't point this out. Hope and, uh, yeah. Also, I, people, I, people don't point out that, like, a lot of people, not just us, because I noticed that a lot of people really do think uh, Prisoner of is really good, and that just so happens to be the only Harry Potter movie directed by a person of color, so maybe <laughs> if you want to make other movies that people are going to gravitate to, maybe you should start hiring people that aren't you know, just Caucasian guys. Uh, I yeah. Don't know, maybe. <laughs> no, I mean, that, just a thought. I don't know. That that's a big uh, point of uh, importance, I think, for a big franchise like this because there's a there's a sense of like wonder, spirit, and adventure with fantasy movies like this. But for stuff like Harry Potter and Star Wars, there's a romanticism, but there's also like a deep melancholy to the stories and the characters. And I think it was Guillermo del Toro who said this last year at the Oscars, like when he was asked a question about how he could make something so lovely but so like depressing about death or whatever and he just responds that i'm mexican like this is like it's just in our dna so you know get right. different perspectives and entire new worlds will be uh, shown to you for the first time and you'll love it and then the rest of us will love it too because we'll get to experience them right alongside you uh, but our last section for the show we just wanted to highlight other great prequel film series or maybe a standalone prequel movie down the line, uh, we got some X-Men prequels to, to varying degrees of quality. Yeah. Uh, we got some uh, an Indiana Jones. We got the Hobbits. We got the Star Wars prequels that are unanimously loved by everyone and at no point have become exhausting to argue about on the internet. Uh, I eliminated The Godfather Part 2 from discussion. That's half a prequel movie, but it is also like one of the greatest movies ever made. So I don't want all of us to have that same answer. 
I just felt that that was the right call. Uh, Nick, what do you? What is your favorite prequel movie in another film series? Uh, I would definitely have to go with uh, First Class. X-Men First Class. Man. Um, <laughs> I, I would definitely have to go with First Class because it, it, it is a... Um, it's a great view of what these people were before you get to 2000s X-Men. You know, you, uh, you get to kind of see who these people were, how they became, you know, the, the icons of, you know, Magneto, Storm, I mean, uh, not Storm, uh, Mystique, uh, Professor X. And you kind of get to see how they created everything and how exactly, how did Cerebro get built? How did, you know, how did they become the X-Men that they were? I mean, to, to go back to Harry Potter when they're doing Order of the Phoenix, you know, every great, uh, what was it, every great, you know, wizard was just like them. And it's really interesting to kind of see these great mutants as like new as newcomers as people that are just learn that are not just learning how to discuss how to use their powers but learning how to become the great people that they will eventually like be and everything else and i think that's really interesting yeah uh i i love first class there, there's there's definitely some issues again to bring it back to the the people of color perspectives uh matthew vaughn matthew, <laughs> matthew vaughn is uh notoriously kind of close-minded about uh his treatment of women and people of color in all of his movies it's just, maybe he's, you know he's maybe he's nothing like malicious <laughs> intended but every person of color and woman meets vicious death and i think someone should talk to him about that soon uh but i i love first class <laughs> the relationship between magneto and charles xavier is um it it, it should have driven another entirely uh a great trilogy of equal quality or even greater. It did not do that, but it should have. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, because uh, the thing is that if you take James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender's performances, and then you just immediately go to 2000s uh, X-Men, you can kind of see what they're talking about. You can, you can really see like, oh yeah, these guys were friends. Like they were on the same side and you can kind of see like, oh yeah, like over the years, a lot of shit has happened that has separated them and made them on two different sides of the same coin. Yeah, and, and it it is kind of unfortunate that the ending has to like rush that because they got they got scared that their prequel trilogy wasn't going to get made, so they're like, oh, well, just in case this is the last X Men movie for us, we got to yeah. like make sure that they they end up on opposite sides. I think it still works, but like imagine if this movie just ended like, oh, Charles and Professor uh, and Magneto are like they're just friends. That's how they end the movie. Like anything could happen, you know. They could change I, the timeline because X Men, and then they like they just reset it right away, which is yeah. I I think that it would have been really interesting if you know uh, what was it Magneto uh, and Professor X are you know at the very end of that movie if they would have like kind of come together and they would have built Xavier's school for mutants. Uh, that would have been really cool. They didn't do that, but I mean that doesn't shortchange how good of a movie that is. Yeah, and, no, no, first, and everything first class else. Movie. Like first class is just an amazing movie uh, and everything else, and yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorite prequels. Andrew, any favorite prequels? I have. Uh, I do agree. First class is really good. It's the best out of. Uh, it's one of the best recent X Men movies, even though it came out in two thousand eleven. I want to say. Holy yeah. shit! I'm fucking old. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I I was gonna choose Rogue One initially. Because that is a prequel. Fight me. It is a prequel. Do it. I don't care do what it. you say. Do but, it. Go but with your first instinct. Go with your I first do instinct. I do think it's a good movie. But 
I think I'm gonna have to say Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Holy shit, you're blowing my mind. Go on, bring it home. Because in a, in certain ways, it does fall into like certain prequel like stereotypes. Like it does show us something. It does explain to us a mystery that we already knew about. It just gives us like more back information, but also at the same time, it does become a mandatory watch within like the prink the the twin the Twin Peaks series because it it explains to us so much of what happened before while also setting up mystery so much new mystery about like the future that beyond we could and I don't think very much of the people succeed at doing so where you're like okay we, we knew that so-and-so was going to happen we already saw that but like now what is this because I have no idea what this is and the the previous installment didn't tell me what this is it's kind of hard to explain without like diving into Twin Peaks lore which is again that's going to take like way more time to do so <laughs> but I think it's very successful at showing us something that we already knew was going to happen but also keeping us engaged also setting up something so much more for what beyond what we could have imagined. Plus, it's David Lynch, and there's plenty of, of like moments and scenes in that movie where you're just like, what the heck? What is this? Why is it like this? And if you thought Twin Peaks was already like, like the, the series itself was already like, you know, it can't get more hinged, and like, you know what, we're, let's go more hinged, and let's do it in a prequel out of all things. So that's <laughs> why I think I like that. I, that's my choice. I mean that that's a great choice um, because uh, Cheryl Lee, who who played uh, Laura Palmer, you know, she starts off the show being dead, and um, everyone liked working with her so much on like those little snippets that they ended up casting her as her cousin, who looks exactly like her. And like, even <laughs> right. stuff, casting like that makes like David Lynch makes that like a testament not only to that that actress's performance, and, but the community of Twin Peaks, everyone idealized this character so much and didn't realize that she was in like such turmoil emotionally and physically, you know, and you could tell that, that David Lynch, you know, he's received criticism for how he treats uh, some women characters, but he's always, he's not interested in the violence inflicted upon them. He's, he's showing us like the trauma that they've undergone and he's, he's interested in showing us like, who's responsible and the toll that could take on people and relationships and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me is basically all about that. It's, it's, it's literally about Laura Palmer, but it's about how the community kind of neglected her to the point of her death. And they, 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 they loved the idea of her more than herself, which is so tragic and makes it for not only essential viewing for Twin Peaks fans, but I think for movie fans. I think, Although if you go in blind, yeah. you'll just like have no idea what the fuck's going on. So exactly. just watch Twin Peaks. Yeah, but I, I think more than essential, it becomes like almost like if you want to, like again, like it's Twin Peaks the series, Firewalk with me. If you really want to get into all the extra stuff, like the deleted scenes in there, you could go ahead and do that. But then you could go into like The Return. And when The Return came out last year, people were like, you have to see the prequel, Firewalk with me. Even though it takes place before you must absolutely see it and i don't think the very like again there are other prequels where they become such like mandatory viewings like you don't have to see rogue one in between revenge of the sith and uh and star wars uh any hope quote unquote, to, to get it you know it's there if you want to see it it adds a lot more it's great but you don't have to because you kind of get you know you you, you kind of get what happens 
But like Firewalk with, like, no, you have to see it because if not, you're probably it's gonna benefit you a whole lot more. You're probably not gonna get so much things going into the the return. Yeah, it it is absolutely mandatory viewing. Um, that yeah, great choices, guys. I think for me, I'm gonna go with the maybe a little more controversial than this. Uh, I'd really like everyone to give Alien Covenant another shot, actually. Which is surprise, you know, whatever the fuck. I, I, I know my brand. Um, because while it, it, it might seem uh, overly plotting to tie the xenomorph to, uh, to humanity, in a sense, because David is just a mad scientist, but, and he was created by humanity, what that decision does for the series, it says that the xenomorphs and humanity are just as um, they deserve each other. That humanity has become so flawed that they've created basically their their version of space Lucifer. They brought hell to themselves. They they created their own new version of hell. But because this isn't a fantasy series, it's science fiction. Hell is machinery and biomechanisms, and he lives in a weird gothic space castle out in the ass end of space, and it's it's angry and bizarre and. It hates humanity so much. I, 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 I cannot not admire something like that. Um, but I also think there's a little optimism in there uh, in, in terms of the two warring factions of, uh, of David and Walter, the two Michael Fassbender androids, where one is freed from their, uh, their earthly confinements and, and protocols, and they're just as bad as humanity, where another one kind of sees a beauty in structure and and his relationships with people who are essentially his masters, but don't really treat him as a slave. And it's, it, there's a lot of big philosophical questions about uh, the happenings in that movie. And I, I think that is a, a severely overlooked movie from 2017. And I sincerely hope that there's one more alien movie in the pipeline before it's all scrapped because uh, that, that's far too interesting of a weird horror movie to not pick up threads from one last time. But uh, I know I, I might be in a, in a corner by myself wearing a dunce hat for this. Um, <laughs> but, but that's the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us for the first time. Uh, we'd love to have you back on. No problem. This is fun. Where can people find you on the Twitter's verse? You can find me uh, at, at, Yokis101, that is Y-O-K-I-S-101. That is an old reference to an obscure uh, inside joke from my friends in high school. I will not get into that lore. Just know that that is my at name. I will not change it. You don't tell me what to do, but that is my at. Uh, no, yeah, but, like, follow me on Twitter and, like, you know, like, don't, like, don't be, like, afraid, like, engaged like if you talk to me i'll respond to you i'm always up to meeting new people new conversations properly even if we don't even if we disagree on a few things it doesn't mean that i'm gonna hate you but i always uh, advise people to like you know like if you see that i'm tweeting something that you don't agree with like tell me like doesn't like i don't agree with diego and i like a lot of and nick about a lot of things but it doesn't matter but they're still cool guys i can still respect them and that's the beauty of criticism so if you want to criticize stuff with me, follow me on Twitter. Well said. Uh, Nick, where can people find you? Find me here at the Waffle Press and on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter is 
at the Nick Valero, and then Facebook is just Nick Valero. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at DEWJ Waffles, at the Waffle Press. Check out uh, the retrospective series we're working on right now. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud. Check out our Patreon again. Uh, help us feed me because I, I don't <laughs> have money. I, I, I have negative $300 in my bank account. Uh, I, I'm, I owe Loan Shark so much money. Uh, if you want me to keep my legs and not have them broken by Loan Sharks, donate to our Patreon. That's my new pitch. Thanks for listening. Thanks also, for watching. Remember, yes. remember to click the bell. Remember oh, to click, click, click the-, the bell. Fucking, I hate YouTube so much. Click the fucking bell. He's right. I just hate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally on professional. Professional.